please forgive me for uh, interrupting what seems to be a very pleasant and vibrant uh, lunch, judging from the discussion that we all have. So Nicholas Bornels of Capitaling, I'd like to thank you all for being with us. I think uh, it's another great event. It's year number 17. I'm looking forward to being with you again three years from now to claim victory on the 20th anniversary. Uh, but so far, we, we have a great track record. Uh, it's a wonderful event. Thank you to all the sponsors uh, who have uh, helped us and all the speakers, the analysts, and of, of course, above uh, all, thank you to you for being with us and making the event, uh, I think, a very good success. We are delighted and honored to have with us John Stoltzfus. He's the uh, Chief Investment Strategist from Oppenheimer Asset Management. I have to confess, uh, you know, we were hoping to get him as a keynote speaker. So when he said uh, yes, we were very happy to have him. Uh, you, you know him. He's very well known around Wall Street. He is uh, very well read, very well spoken. He has particularly uh, insightful and strong views. Uh, if I may say, during lunch, he told me, Nicholas, I have been one of the early bulls and I still remain so, so thank you. Uh, with that, I will invite him to the podium, and uh, please take over and guide us through. And thank you very much for being with us. And he's going to take a few questions afterwards. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nicholas. Thank you. Appreciate it. And, uh, and, and thank you all. I, I, I hope I can keep your interest now that you've had such a good dinner, or good lunch. Uh, the food was extraordinarily good. I, I feel like a character out of uh, uh, Wodehouse, P.G. Wodehouse, for those of you who are familiar with British literature, uh, in that uh, they were always talking about the chefs earlier in the last century. And uh, the chef had a, an excellent piece of fish on my plate that was just fabulous. I hope you enjoyed your meal as much as I did. Uh, as uh, Nicholas mentioned, I, uh, I am one of the early bulls uh, in this bull market. I turned... Uh, Positive on, on a, uh, had a positive outlook on the recovery of the U.S. economy and the U.S. markets as early as uh, January 20th of 2009. And I couldn't say that if the press hadn't been there the day that, uh, that I said that. And uh, very fortunately, uh, there was a reporter at an event at the time. I've, I've worked on Wall Street since 1983, so I've been through every boom, bust, and recovery cycle since that period. And uh, I've worked at many firms. Uh, some of you may uh, have worked at those or may work at those today. I, I worked at, uh, at Dean Witter 30-some oh, years ago. I worked with uh, Chase before it bought J.P. Morgan. I, um, I worked for Morgan Stanley for a number of years, uh, Midtown here at, uh, at the, on the Broadway home office. And uh, I worked also for a small bank uh, by the name of Bank of America. You may have heard of it. Uh, and uh, as well as uh, a small firm uh, called Ticonderoga, an institutional firm, uh, between uh, uh, in 2009 into 2010. I also teach at New York University a class called uh, Intermarket uh, Analysis and Market Strategy for the last 10 years. And currently, and I hope for, for the uh, beyond the foreseeable future, I work with Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer Asset Management, uh, located at 85 Broad, Broad Street. Uh, but anyway, let's get back to uh, 09. It was January 20th of 2009. 
I was driving up, in, uh, that, I was in Des Moines, Iowa on the same day that Barack Obama was being inaugurated president in Washington, D.C. It was a gray day in Des Moines, Iowa. That morning I was meeting uh, at a breakfast with some clients, uh, high net worth clients and their advisors. And in the afternoon, I was at an event that was sponsored uh, by a, a local business uh, publisher uh, that was uh, where they invited people from the community as well as uh, clients, again, of, uh, of financial advisors and their advisors. There was also a panel. Uh, I was the keynote speaker at that event as well, and there was a, a panel with local economists from local universities as well as uh, local uh, economists representing uh, government agencies in the area. Everybody had a long face. Everybody was very concerned. The markets were still coming down from after 08 into the first quarter of 2009. And, uh, and I had a positive message. My positive message essentially was, as, as a longtime equities guy, I'm also a big bond market watcher. And I very uh, like to feel closely attuned to whatever the Fed is doing. And I thought what Ben Bernanke had, had done up to that point was just terrific. And I thought Hank Paulson had done a great job finishing up his tenure as, as Secretary of the Treasury. And I thought we were well positioned. Uh, we were expecting at that point the economy uh, to rally in the second half of the year. And I had uh, a, a confidence that after what the, the government had done from the level of the Fed and the Treasury, that uh, we would get some kind of a bounce that would be likely something we could build a platform for a recovery. So with this positive message, luckily that guy with the press was there, because I'd never remembered. I speak at, uh, fortunate to speak at so many events that I probably would not have recalled saying this. But the guy, uh, and as a New Yorker, the way I heard it, it, it sounded like this to me. Okay, pal, if you're so positive about the markets and the economy, when do you think the stock market is going to come back? And the first thing I thought was, I thought, my gosh, the audacity of the press to ask this kind of a question. I said, here uh, today, as the markets come down, we've got change of leadership in Washington. And then I just picked it up from there. And I said, well, we're expecting the, uh, the economy to bounce back in the second half of, of, of the year with all this liquidity that's going to be applied. So I said, I'd expect the market as a discount mechanism would likely rally as early as the end of the first quarter of this year, which would have been March 31st. Well, as you know today, and I know today, the markets were kind to me. They didn't wait until March 31st, but we got that bounce on March 10th after a disaster on March 9th when we hit a low of 676 as I occur. As I recall, in, in midday we hit 666, which of course everybody was very excited about. Oh my. But uh, we have stuck to bullish calls since that time. In fact, uh, in the remainder of that year, 09, I'd left uh, 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 B of A and was working with, with that, that other firm, Ticonderoga, before I got to Oppenheimer. And um, I was quoted something like 400 times in the press, uh, not necessarily, I think, because I was such a great writer, but I was one of the few people who was bullish. <laughs> and, and so we got, I, I even landed on the front page of the, of the Financial Times of London, which I thought was extraordinarily uh, global of me, and I was very happy with that. My, uh, my, uh, my uh, colleagues at the firm that I was working for at that time pointed out that my name was on the first half of the fold and the firm's name came on the second half of the fold, but I was very, I, I was happy about it. Um, but we, we remained positive through, oh, the Greek crisis in 2010 when there were more 
specialists on Greece on CNBC and Bloomberg Television than you can find at the Metropolitan Museum of Art up the block. Uh, and uh, we didn't think the Greeks would leave because, very simply, we thought they, uh, they couldn't afford to. Uh, we thought that, uh, 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 and, and from a perspective of the European Monetary Union, while many were calling for the end of the, of, uh, the euro, we thought the euro, it was a good reserve currency. It had a lot of uh, interest and strength. Uh, we, we didn't think there was a problem. We, and we held this point through. You remember the, you remember the, the, the in the, was it 2012 when we, the big story was we were going to go over the fiscal cliff? Was that it? And the, indeed, the politicians did hang us over the fiscal cliff, but they didn't let us go down the other side. And it, was it 20, 2011 when we had the, uh, that's when the U.S. lost its uh, AAA rating. No foreign government would ever buy a U.S. Treasury again. <laughs> Remember that? So we've held positive through a lot of these things. A lot of our work is, is, uh, relies on very deep uh, dives into economic data on a global basis, political analysis, uh, 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 demographic uh, uh, strengths and weaknesses that we see, uh, current business trends as well as secular trends. Uh, and of course, we're always looking at uh, uh, top-down and bottoms-up analysis related to earnings and, and revenue trends, not only stateside but a global basis. Uh, and we are still positive today. Every day when I wake up and I keep a Bloomberg in my bedroom, all right, it's not the old terminal that we remember, but it's, you know, off of the clouds on a laptop, I always check it, looking to see where Asia closed and where Europe is, is, is doing, uh, always seeing if there's been some kind of a change. But I think we've been extraordinarily lucky this cycle that the role of the central banks around the world has not only remained important, uh, but that it has had leadership that has been remarkably good about judging uh, what was broken in the global economy, what was broken in the banking system, uh, what was in terms of where leverage was, all the, the difficulties that had occurred from too little regulation, self-regulation, which is essentially no regulation, then too much regulation, and then changes in terms of the, the technology and globalization that had brought. I can remember uh, many years ago, in 97, uh, during the, the, the tech bubble, uh, 97 through 03, uh, a, a period where technology was relatively new. At the time, I was, uh, I was with Morgan Stanley at that time at, at, at Midtown, and gosh, the, the, you'd get freezes on the screen very, very easily. There would go your internet coverage. You know, today, in the middle of the night, Unless you have trouble with your cable provider or you got direct satellite TV, uh, usually your, your internet coverage is pretty good uh, around the clock. But things have really changed uh, over the last few years, and I know strategists have to be very careful about saying this time it's different. But certain things have definitely morphed or evolved since uh, that period. And that is that globalization has come of age. Repeatedly since the crisis, we have seen uh, the, the concept of decoupling of economies or regions of the world, emerging markets from developed and developed from emerging, it has been debunked repeatedly for the simple reason that the global, is a, a global economy, both in terms of production, delivery of services, is so intricately entwined that we can't afford to live without each other. 
we will often find that our politicians uh, uh, will create all types of global risk. And by the way, when I speak as strategist for Oppenheimer, uh, I am always politically agnostic, so I offend all sides, okay? I, I offend conservatives, liberals, uh, centrists, uh, populists, and, and anything on, on all sides, because I just call it the way I see it for the markets, you know? I'm always looking, what's the best benefit uh, to uh, our clients, our advisors, and the firm, uh, and what type of market are we facing? And uh, But when we look at it today, uh, from, a, from a point of view of the global economy, we have technology has lowered the barriers of entry to competitors on a global basis, uh, like like no other time that I can ever re uh, uh, recall in the last 35 years in this business, in that companies that are relative, relative uh, uh, new, new formed corporations can very quickly, aided by technology, whether it's advanced logistics, whether it's uh, CRM, customer relationship management, whether it's uh, the ability to uh, uh, digitalize advertising, one's message, uh, social media, what have you, but in a very short time, relatively new companies can become the global competitive peer of long-established developed market companies. And what that tends to do is it puts a cap on pricing. Because as we all know, unless you have an extraordinary innovative stance, you have to watch what you charge for your services or your products. And we think that's disinflationary. Then, of course, there's uh, algorithms in the offices and robotics on the factory floor that have reduced the need for as many people as would have been needed to deliver X number of services or X number of products than, than in, in other eras. So we, we look at the current environment, we see a global economy that is growing at, at a decent but not at a terribly robust pace. Uh, we also see that there are there is a, a reflation occurring, but that's what the Federal Reserve and other central banks have been looking for for a long time, and we say, why complain about it? We think a, a, a three point, uh, uh, what was it earlier today? Was it 3.1% or 3.19? So just about 3.2 on the 10 year, was it earlier today? Would somebody correct me if I'm wrong? Don't be afraid to shout out, but I don't wanna have to look at my Bloomberg. But my, my point on this is uh, uh, that with the inflation that we have today may be the welcome reflation we need uh, we don't think that with wages kept in check as a result of robotics on the factory floor, algorithms in the offices, and global competitiveness that is outstanding today, we don't think we're going to get the type of worrisome inflation that once uh, caused the stock market a lot of trouble. So we remain positive on equities. At this point, we are allocated in our, in our uh, uh, allocation model around 68% equities, global equities. In the US, we are market cap agnostic, essentially exposed fairly evenly to large caps, mid caps, and small caps, and glad we are that we, at the beginning of the year, when many were talking about you just had to be in large caps, we held to the market cap agnostic. Worked out pretty nice. Right now, mids and smalls are outperforming the large caps for the year thus far. And we think in this environment, it's important to be, uh, or to consider market cap agnosticism because these markets, because of the d digital uh, delivery of information and the response 
to different uh, changes within the uh, uh, economic landscape can cause a significant rotation and rebalancing intermittently that rewards one, uh, uh, one market capitalization over another, but for a relatively short period of time. On a global basis, we, we are heavily exposed uh, internationally, but uh, underweight compared to the US. But we have a decent exposure uh, in Europe, uh, in, in Japan. We have uh, exposure as, as well in the emerging markets, as well as in the frontier. And of course, I have to add to this, we do it all with ETFs. We also have portfolios that we call uh, Hedge Your Alpha with Beta, where we mix individual equities and, uh, uh, and ETFs. But we also think in the environment that we're in, highly prone to rotation and rebalancing, where terrific stocks can just get battered overnight on short-term trading uh, that can be much more valuable to be held intermediate to long-term, we think it's a good idea to use ETFs to hedge your alpha positions. It gives you the ability, oftentimes, if the, if the, if the alpha is failing or is weakening, you'll find that your beta is strengthening so long as it remains a good opportunity for, for equities. Related to the U.S. dollar, uh, we had expected in, uh, in 2017 that the dollar was going to weaken. We had published in 2016 when many were expecting the dollar to, uh, to strengthen significantly. Uh, we thought the dollar was overpriced. It came down last year. Tell you the truth, this year we were looking for the dollar to continue weakening as it did indeed up until, what, about a month, month and a half ago. We think the current strength in the dollar is, has a lot to do with the uncertainty related to the potential for trade uh, disruption via uh, uh, tariffs uh, that could be imposed uh, between China and the United States. We think the market's concerned about that. We also think that the dollar, of course, is, get, is getting a bid because uh, the U.S. economy is, is doing substantially better than most other economies around the world, even as we have a global economic recovery uh, in place, and in the US, uh, an economic expansion. Uh, when it comes to uh, energy and commodities, we'd have to say uh, we, we're, we were wrong on that. I got to tell you, we were, we were right last year. We were underweight energy. Uh, we were underweight energy coming into this year. We carry uh, versus the S&P 500 that weighs the, uh, uh, the energy sector at around a little bit over 6% now. We're at around 4.4%. So we're still participating. But we think the strength in the price of oil is related to three things in particular. Uh, the first uh, would be, of course, we've got a, the, globally there's increased demand as the economy of the world improves. Secondly, uh, the, the weakness of the dollar from last year into the start of this year through most of the first quarter uh, also makes oil cheap for foreign buyers of, of oil, which is primarily a dollar-based commodity. And I've found, I don't know if you have, but in, in my experience, I've found that when the dollar is cheap, foreign users of imported oil will most likely buy not only what they need, but then they will stockpile it then they will hoard it, then they will speculate in it, and then they would drink it if they could. And, uh, and, and we haven't gotten to that state yet, but oil still has, has plenty of support. I also think that the alternative uh, energies 
are just still not strong enough in terms of infrastructure delivery to really put much of a dent into the price of the oil uh, up to about uh, 80, 90 bucks a barrel, uh, at which time I would expect so. Of course, the third thing is, as you all know, you have OPEC. Uh, uh, amazingly so, at this time, OPEC has been uh, uh, a very, uh, members of o OPEC have restricted their production and not cheated for the most part. I don't know about you, but I can never remember that happening before. At this time, they've really stuck to it. And as a result of that, another supporter. But we can't help but think, as the price of oil moves higher, and earlier today, I think the press was reporting, as I awoke, they were saying $80 on the barrel of oil. I said, that's got to be Brent. I looked at the Bloomberg. It was indeed. It was, that was the Brent price. But stateside, it was about 6 bucks under that, as I recall, around 74 but creeping higher. Uh, we, we just think that there's just a matter of time before producers, whether it is Iran or whether it is producers in the Permian Basin, just finally saying, you know, uh, we're going to, to pump more, and we think that'll bring the, the, the price of oil down. Uh, I'd like to show you a couple of charts just real quick, that, uh, and then, uh, if I may, let's see, this clicker. That uh, looks like it. Okay, I, I got a chart book. We publish a chart book on a monthly uh, basis, and... Um, if you can see this, one of the, one of the things that, that, that has had carried considerable weight on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of short-term trading has been the fact that we have not had, um, we have not had a lot of uh, pullbacks uh, in the last year. Bear with me a moment. I think this is somebody trying to scam me. <laughs> it, just, it just happens, you know. There we go. It's just, it, it, it's, they, it's just really something else. Anyway, I distracted myself. Let me get back to this. When we, when we look at this, we went back all the way for the last, uh, we went back uh, 20 years, all the way back to 1998. Hard to believe 1998 is 20 years ago, but it is. And what you notice, if you look at the extreme right hand, is you look at the, the, the extreme right column, is the annual price return of the S&P 500 in all the years since that time. And you'll notice, after the tech bubble burst in 2000, there were three successive years of losses for the S&P 500. And, but then after that, when the market recovered nicely, there wasn't a significant decline in the market until 2008 on an annualized basis, on an annual basis. The market was off 38%. It had another 20% to fall in the first quarter of 09 before March 10th. But overall, uh, the next year, the market in 09, the market was up 23.5%. 2010 was the Greek crisis. The, on the left, the first column is the maximum uh, drawdown, okay, which was about 15% that year in 2010. Uh, and yet for the year, we were up 12.78%. 2011 uh, was a flat year for the market. I think if you uh, reinvested your dividend, you might have been positive, but it was a flat year. Uh, but then 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015 again. Remember when the, the Chinese devalued their currency in August? There was uncertainty about growth. Oh my, if the Chinese devalued their currency, the thought was that would be the end of the, 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 the world of trade as we knew it. And yet, 
you know, we're, we're, we're fortunate. We looked at it. We couldn't help but think. We'd, we, our first trip to China had been in 04. At that time, the yuan was around 8.3, 8.6 or so. So in 2015, when the yuan was at six and change and they wanted to devaluate it, we looked, we thought, this is, this is really, they've just withheld their currency so high for many years, we weren't surprised. But you look there, the market discounted that pretty quickly. And in the last few years, of course, we had 2016 was nine and 2017 was 19%. Now, why have I labored through all these, these points in the market? The reason why I like to say is every one of those years, for those of you who deal with clients on a one-to-one -one basis, whether they are institutions or whether they are individuals, because I've seen incredible bearishness uh, from institutions uh, from beyond the crisis date up until just about last year, uh, when you look at this, is every one of those years there was something that happened in the markets that said to you, this is a good reason not to invest. And yet, that thought is proven wrong repeatedly since 1998, notwithstanding the 2008 debacle. Now, what I'd like to say is, that in our opinion, we believe that part of this has to do that markets today discount both good news and bad news quicker than ever before. I can remember when I started on Wall Street in 1983, I was like Bud Fox. I'd take the train down to Wall Street. I was reading the Wall Street Journal. I'd read the Wall Street Journal on the train. I'd read the Wall Street Journal walking up the steps. I'd, walk, I'd cross Broadway, headed to the Trade Center at the time where I was working. I'd still be reading the Wall Street Journal, get to my desk. There was a Quotron machine or a Bunker Ramo. For those of you who remember that, it was a primitive vehicle. Essentially, you would type in, let's, the bellwether of the day was IBM, enter. All of a sudden, a price and a volume uh, figure would show up, a bid and an ask. You also had news from the Dow Jones News Retrieval Service, but it was all about 20 hours old by the time it got on that screen. Today, a 12-year-old in the middle of the night with a decent laptop connection can tell you where Singapore is trading and how it looks that Europe is going to open that day. Its information is so quickly disseminated. People still need experts, people who are understanding of the markets and the relationships between all the asset classes, the currencies, the um, stocks, bonds, cash positions, commodities, what have you. But the information is out there. The question is what to do with it. But the market discounts very quickly. I don't know about you, but in, in 2008, I can recall uh, very highly uh, trained professionals saying uh, that, uh, that basically where we were headed was to very low returns for the stock market over the next few years. And in 2009, during that, that first quarter, I can remember one guy who wrote, the best the stock market can expect to gain is 3 to 5% in the next decade per year. And you know, the average annual return since, since the bottom on, on, uh, on March 9th of 09 is around 16% per annum for the S&P 500. Uh, if, however, I like to go back to the last cyclical peak when we were at 1565, and that was on October 9th, 2007. And since that time, the stock market is only up about 5% per year annualized. 
So what I propose to you this day of our luncheon here, and I hope I'm right about this, is what it may indicate is this phenomenal rally that we have seen of a bull market that has been able to, to climb against significant walls of worry just about every year has really been tied to, to the fact that the market was recovering from a horribly oversold condition. And that in reality, we, are, we probably have further upside from this point, perhaps for the next few years, so long that the Fed doesn't, doesn't get too excessive increasing rates or doesn't miss the uh, buildup of inflation that it might need to address near term, uh, so long as we don't get uh, a, a protectionist uh, trade war brewing, if we get through these things, and I, I, I would think that if we, if we get some kind of an agreement, even if it's just an extension to negotiate NAFTA, I think we could get a fairly decent rally attributed to that. And if we get a deal with the Chinese, I think it'll be extraordinary. I think we'll get a, a real jump in the market. I think our biggest worry then will be another melt-up. And I'm not a big fan of melt-ups. I like to say no boom, no bust, no, uh, no boom, no bubble, no bust, I'll take it. Give me a market that climbs a wall of worry as this one has, and I'm very, very happy with it. I'd like to ask, are there any questions here before we adjourn? Yes, sir. You know, that, that, that's a good, good question. I'll, I'll have, to, have to say I would have to refer that to our, our area that deals with advising uh, pension plan sponsors. But I would have to say this, is that pension plans in the, in the last few years, uh, over the last 10, 15 years, if anything, uh, moved away from both the bond market and stock market and moved to alternatives and are now just beginning to go back to the traditional markets. Uh, I would expect that we have an opportunity to see uh, pension plans participate much more in the equity and bond markets in the next five years than they have in many years before. I think one of the things that might do it is uh, the transparency, of course, is very important, I think, to, especially as the population begins to become more uh, uh, attuned to the fact that planning for retirement is essential. Uh, as positive as I am on the art outcomes for the market, I am concerned about the baby boomer generation, which I believe predominantly has underfunded their pension uh, 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 planning through their own savings. So I, I think there's a good opportunity to see a change there, but I think the, the change wasn't so much that they went to equities and left, but they went to alternatives. Yes, sir. I think, you know, I, I can't give you a percentage on that, but standing up here at the podium today, I'd have to say I would imagine at least 15 to 25% or more. However, the buybacks, I think, were essential in that most companies and most industries today have a very high level of building too much capacity because of that 
technology and globalization factor, which creates lower barriers of entry to competitors and a myriad of businesses. So I can't help but think by removing shares uh, from the marketplace, in effect, they have, they have been able to reward their investors for their support, their shareholders, but at the same time avoided the risk of, of developing overcapacity. And the, the percentage could be larger. I just, uh, just really, it, it, it has not been, I was, I was never a fan of buybacks until the current cycle because of this overcapacity issue. And we began looking at the overcapacity as it started in China, when China got into the aluminum smelters way back in the late 90s. And the, the big difficulty was China was very capable of creating overcapacity in just about every uh, rust bucket type industry. And then as it goes forward, it's in technology. I mean, look at, look at the situations we have today. Yeah, let's say, and if you take that out, what you're writing, 12% per, per year, that's still pretty good, I'll take it. And, and the fact that they didn't build overcapacity or that they at least reduced the exposure to developing overcapacity, I think is a real positive thing for the markets. Yes, sir. Uh, you know, I, I got to tell you, I would, I would have to say, our, our exposure, and it's a small percentage of exposure, about 9% in our allocation is to midterm uh, note duration. Uh, and we've probably been wrong on that, you know. It, it's, it, it, this is the biggest, I can, rem the only thing I can say on a parallel basis is I can remember speaking with fiduciaries of pension plans, small companies here in, in New York City, and in 20, uh, not 20, 19, well, it sounded like, like father time here, but in 1984, 85, saying to them, I think you should buy these U.S. Treasury 10-year zero coupons at 14%. They compound, they're not callable, and inflation has begun to show signs of declining. And invariably, 80 to 90% of them said, no, no thanks, Johnny. We want to be sure we stay short-term because we know Inflation is coming back. And of course, it didn't happen for the next. It, it's not that it didn't attempt to come back. If we, uh, I, I think I have a, um, I know I have in here. If I go, okay, this is, let me see if I can just, this is a, I like the way this sort of, here it is. That, that was it. That's what I was looking for. Here's the 10 the year treasury yield. Uh, I think that's a 40-some year stretch. So it peaks around the time I got into the business. I got there for the second peak. But you'll see it wasn't a straight line down. It ratchets its way down. I expect it will ratchet its way up again, but at a, at a relatively quicker pace because it's always pain is inflicted faster than, than, than pleasure. Uh, anyway, um, and so when you... <laughs> When you look at this, the way, the way this is, I'd have to say, you know, I, I get very distressed when I look at a 30-year and see how little it pays. But I think what, what, what's supporting the 30-year right now is institutional users who have end, uh, end periods that they need to meet with certain amounts of capital and a guaranteed return. I, I, think, I think what we're going to, the, the real deal right now in terms of cash 
is, is our, our treasuries that are just around 2% uh, T-bills, and, and of course you've got the two-year and the five-year that are very attractive, but they're not good for goal-oriented investments. We all know the rule of 72. The good news is if you get 1% on your money guaranteed, you'll double your money in 72 years. I don't even know if the youngest person in this room will be alive in 72 years, but perhaps with greater longevity. And if you double that to 2%, what the heck, it's only 36 years. But you take that up to 6%, 6 suddenly in 12 years, you've got a good uh, uh, opportunity. So I, I always like to say when it comes to a mix of diversified securities, uh, it's important to right-size your expectations, and you just might be pleasantly surprised as we have been. Any other questions? Yes, sir. I think the, 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 the tax reform near term is certainly, uh, uh, has been so far very helpful, uh, but in terms of its, its contribution to deficits is, is quite worrisome. Uh, my attitude towards the building of deficits at this time via tax reform is if we had built the deficit uh, looking forward the way we are doing with, uh, uh, with lower taxes for corporations, and at least to some individuals, though if you live in New York, you're going to get killed right this year. Uh, but the, uh, my thought is uh, that you have to look at it, uh, what alternative did we have? Uh, if we had done, if we, had, if we were increasing the deficits for some type of a social program, whether it was free health care for everyone, uh, a guaranteed wage for everybody, that would be a bad thing. But if this gets companies to invest more in their businesses, if it raises CapEx, if it helps corporations get through this period of interest rate normalization, creating greater liquidity for corporations via lower tax rates, just as the Fed is removing liquidity from its very important commitment to normalization, we can't help but think it's a worthwhile risk to take. Longer term, uh, we have to deal with, with, uh, with fiscal reform at the government level that is as hard as herding cats. It's, I don't know how we do it. It's the gang with the $800 haircuts, you know, that uh, has the, the benefits that are... Uh, are you amazed by the, by the benefits that uh, the, the, uh, the, the House and the Senate have in terms of their health care and every, retirement? Everything's built in for them. They should have to experience it the way we do. The do-it-yourself be a very practical point. Not a political statement, mind you, but just something that could help reduce the deficit because the more people feel the heat, the more they're likely to move. Any more questions? I want to thank you all for, for, for your time. Thanks so much. Appreciate it.